welcome to our series, Artist Talks, where we host unscripted conversations with contemporary photographers on how they capture ideas, meet creative challenges, and discover resources. We will also be talking with all those who support artists, including curators, nonprofit directors, and arts organizations. Be sure to look at our episode notes for hyperlinks to each artist's inspiration and resources. Welcome to those listening to our next artist talk. I am not in the studio of Jason Langer, but I am in Zoom connection and I'm really excited to unpack his latest monograph, Berlin. And I'm going to cover a couple of other areas since he is someone who has published three previous books and has a long history in the photographic world, is represented by three galleries, has uh, acquisition in a number of different places. So in our unscripted conversation, we're gonna try to touch on a few of those places. But to open it up, I want to say it was an exquisite pleasure to go through Berlin. And I was excited as you had told me it was coming. And when I got the PDF, um, I have a very special history with Berlin and I will share that in a minute or while we're talking about your book because you too have quite a relationship with this city. And I just wanted to frame it with something that I think your book did so beautifully. Um, it talks about embracing this scarred city. It talks about it being, being incomprehensible, full of experiences of expulsion, extermination, escape, grief, pain, literally holding that that is abysmally dark in the human experience and also the incredible indomitable resist resilience of the human spirit. And I think it was really beautifully described as both being compounded and refracted simultaneously. So I wanna open up for you, Jason, to give us a broad brush of what led you to Berlin and led you to bring together these three essays, this plethora of imagery, and um, unpack that for us. So welcome. Sure. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's you are one of the best interviewers in photography, and I really appreciate you having me. Uh, here to talk about my latest book, which is Berlin. And the Berlin project started in 2008 when I had a show of my first book, Secret City, published by Nazareli Press at Michael Hoppins Gallery in London. And he's the one who suggested that I go to Berlin and start photographing, but he didn't know at that time that I grew up in Israel and as a child in the 1970s. And every year as a kid, we children who lived in children's houses, not with our parents, would be brought on Holocaust Memorial Day to the Holocaust Memorial and be asked to stand in silence and remember those who lost our lives, their lives. 
in order for us to be in, in Israel, the land of milk and honey, as we were told. So that haunted me, just that needing to stand in, in silence and thinking about those who lost their lives and knowing about the Holocaust haunted me for many, many years. When I was 13 also, I had a dream, kind of a waking dream that I was also put into a, a death camp oven alive. So it, it really buried deep in my subconscious. So um, in 2008, Michael Hoppin suggested it. I was sort of mortified at this idea of going there and photographing a place that I had been very frightened of. I always thought of Berlin as the seat of the Third Reich. Uh, when we were settling in Israel in the 1970s, my mother bought this book called The Wonderful Story of the Jews. And it had a couple pages of illustrations taken straight from the famous photograph of the boy with his arms raised from the Warsaw Ghetto uh, by you know machine gun wielding Nazis and told about what happened in the Holocaust. And that also buried deep in my subconscious. So I met this guy who invited me to stay with him in Berlin and from, from 2009 to 2013, I went there every year for two weeks at a time with uh, about um, 60 or 70 rolls of film every time and two cameras mm -hmm. and walked the city and discovered the city and photographed people along the way. I went to some places that were important for Jewish life uh, back uh, during the war. Mm -hmm. I went to places of atrocity, but I also tried to get a feeling of the city as it is now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a burgeoning city. The, the average uh, age of residents there is about 35, which ironically is the same as here in Portland. And it's a wow. young city. It's an artistic city. A lot has happened since the war. And I wanted to capture that as well. So it was complex. It also was interesting that the flat that I stayed in every year was occupied by a bunch of young people in their 20s. And, uh, and whenever they said, I, I'm gonna be going on a trip, you can stay in my bed. I would go there, you know, stay with them and meet a bunch of new people and find uh, all of these young people living in Berlin on a shoestring budget and their girlfriends and boyfriends and at the time I was photographing a bunch of nudes as for part of my other project, which is this Craigslist project where I would photograph random people uh, nude in intimate settings in their homes. And they said they wanted to do that too. So it was an interesting circumstance where I would photograph places during the day where Jews were hidden or deported in Berlin as well as the first concentration camp in Germany, which is Sachsenhausen to the north. And then I would come back and my roommates at the time would want their nude pictures done. And that's sort of the, one of the cruxes of this book is that both can happen simultaneously. Berlin is such a complex, multi-layered, historically vibrant place that all of that is happening all the time. So when it came to getting the right writers for this, first of all, I, I knew that I needed to write for this book. This, this is one thing that, that separates this book from all the others that I've done. 
is that I wrote an autobiographical essay about this story and why I photographed it in a certain way. But I also felt like there needed to be an introduction about the complexity and history of Berlin. Hold on, I'm gonna stop you there because you've got too many things that I wanna underline before okay, we yeah. Um, yeah. But hold on, one, one of the things I wanted to say is it sounds like your experience really reflects the essence of Berlin, which is that compounding and refracting simultaneously and, and really embracing the opposites. So I think that's a, a layered reflection of what you compiled in this, in this really rich book. That was one thing. Um, the other is obviously you conflated projects, which I really love and wanted to bring out because uh, working with the amount of people I do, there's a way in which our vision gets blinders on by a particular project that has all of a sudden parameters that are actually self-imposed. And often I'm found, finding when I'm looking at people's work, they will approach me saying I have three bodies of work and I ironically see one body with something from each of those places. So, so kudos for you doing all of the above. With the writing and where you just left off, I know you felt the need, unlike your other books, for text. So just unpack that a little more specifically because it sounds like you felt a need autobiographically to understand, um, but it sounds like a lot of things were going on because you did something very purposeful and you found very perfect people to look through their lens and give us words. So tell us about that. Well, that's great. Your previous comment though about mixing different projects together where there really is only one vision mm -hmm. coming from the photographer is different in this case. And that's why part of the reason why it was such a struggle to make this book is because I'm dealing with the Holocaust, mm -hmm. right? I'm dealing with a subject matter that is so heavy that is it is usually taken on its own. Mm -hmm. and, and my experience was, is that I'm, several generations past the Holocaust and Berlin has changed a lot. And I had the freedom to walk around the city without feeling like I'm going to be arrested, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And that was a tremendous gift. But when I'm photographing those places, I have to be very conscious and respectful of mixing lighter imagery with imagery that talks about mass murder. Yes. Right. And so that that was that's part of the reason why it took so long to edit this book. Mm -hmm. Well, so. yes, you're holding opposites and you are being respectful and honoring. And it sounds to me like you were basically um, if you can tell me if this is a correct analysis, but it made me think and I wanted to ask if you use photography to craft a formation of knowledge of yourself. And if that wasn't something that was, in addition to being given the idea to do this, there was a germ of something for yourself and your own self-knowledge that propelled this and you use photography as a tool for that. So yeah, let's, let's talk about those two things. That 
me using photography for my own self-betterment and self-understanding and also the, the, the reason why I started to write and find mm-hmm. writers mm-hmm. for the book. Perfect. So, um, yeah, I would say my main reason for being interested in photography in general is because I feel a need to express my own interpretation of living, mm-hmm. right? My own interpretation of reality. So I'm, I can't help, but from a photograph from a very subjective perspective, mm-hmm. I'm not a documentary photographer, right? And I'm not concentrated on social or political issues. Mm-hmm. They may come out as an after effect, but mm-hmm. mostly I'm interested in photographing something that I want to better understand, mm-hmm. that I'm curious about. And, and that may or may not be interesting to other people but it's what I photograph anyway. So there's that. And, and with this photographic project, I showed it to several people. And I also felt this way myself that the pictures are kind of opaque. They don't really tell why I photographed in a certain way. First of all, they're in black and white. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they're, they're grainy. They're pretty gritty looking Mm -hmm. and they're a little bit, um, uh stoic i would say you know and static and if anyone were to look at the pictures without any kind of writing they would say um you know they would understand a kind of fear but they wouldn't understand the history of why i was afraid right why i kept the city at kind of a distance and and analyzed it in the way that i did and Mm -hmm. tried to research it in the way that i did so um at the time, I was reading The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's great. She's a great, oh. she's the ultimate authority on memoir. Yeah. And I got inspired. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, why make another monograph that, you know, is photo after photo after photo, sometimes with white pages in between with an introduction by a curator? I've already done that. Right. Why not do something else, especially with a project that is as personal as this one? So I took it on. I decided to just write about my experience and and in a way open up completely about how the project was done Mm -hmm. and why I did it in a certain way. And originally, my thought was to publish a book of photographs and a companion with it. And the companion would be my diary entries, which I wrote when I was there, Mm -hmm. and uh, contact sheets, and my thoughts about photography and where it is now. Mm -hmm. So, but that sort of got distilled into one singular book with a three-page essay Mm -hmm. that I wrote myself and had the the good fortune to have it be edited by Diane Smith, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of BJP. So I got very lucky with that. And I knew that Peggy Sue Amison lives in Berlin Mm -hmm. and I asked her for some suggestions and she suggested Bill Cohenhoven. Mm -hmm. He is a longtime resident of Berlin, but actually I knew him, he knew me from the old days in San Francisco when he used to publish Photo Metro Mm -hmm. back in the Mm nineties. So he already knew me and that was was a nice connection. Um, And I tasked, uh um bill 
with writing about the layers of history of Berlin and why it is such an important city and for so many reasons. And he was great in the way that he included the Holocaust for sure, but also what life was like before mm-hmm. in the roaring 20s in this carefree era uh, by comparison, and then how that all changed during the war. And then after the war, how Germany's fascination with socialism continued by being split up and, and having all kinds of, of continuations, the Stasi, the prison for political prisoners, and so many different types of control of, of public that is still there in many ways. Mm-hmm. So he wrote about that, and he also included uh, a lot of the artistic creations that were created uh, post-war as well to acknowledge that. So that was great to have it, and it actually affected how I edited the work. Well, I was going to ask that a couple of things. One is I know Bill as well, and he was absolutely, an, it, he just provided an orchestration. He wove together so many things succinctly and beautifully and with a uh, well-honed historical understanding as well as, uh, sorry for the phrase, but boots on the ground perspective. Um, so I'm, I'm so pleased that he and you were reconnected and that Peggy Sue made that uh, uh, collaboration happen. And I just thought, I'm, I know given what it takes to edit and sequence, and I haven't done the math for how many rolls of film over all those years that you went back, how many were talking, but number one, how to edit which images, and then how to have this conversation. Because again, it's an orchestration, right? It's choreography. Um, And so I love that you're telling us that Bill helped uh, your viewpoint, basically. He helped give you a, I don't know whether I'd say a contextual frame, but almost a visual language that you were going for. So, yeah, it was very hard to, to edit this book. And originally there were too many um, difficult ghost-like images of some of the harder elements of Berlin that are still there, but they're not the tourist area. So for instance, there is a prison for political prisoners that I was given a private tour and there are really haunting spaces. Mm -hmm. And there's also the former offices of the Stasi. Mm -hmm. So they're really beautiful pictures, but they are very off-putting and Mm -hmm. difficult to look at. And, And at some point I cut them out and I just said, I don't need to go this deeply into this subject matter. And then when it turned, it turned around was when he wrote about it. And I thought, okay, well, he's saying that this is important enough to write about as the continuation of the history of Berlin being about these mm-hmm. kinds of subjects that I put them back in. Well, it's really a, a telling of the truth. Um, and what I appreciate mm-hmm. is what it takes to weave together all these different pieces, both from your own perspective and experience and the city of Berlin, which is also equally as complex. And I I don't wanna lose one thread, which is around the fact that 
in your essay, you spoke about this being a dream within a dream of a dream. And you gave us a hint that one of your, your 13 year old actual dream memories was uh, 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 having that horrific experience yourself. But could you unpack how this is a dream within a dream within a dream? Oh, wow. Well, this, you know, goes back to, uh, you know, deep, deep Jewish roots, mm -hmm. right? The, the deepest part of, of Jewish mysticism is a lot about how there is uh, an unknowable code mm -hmm. about the underlying fabric of reality. Mm -hmm. And God is mixed in there. I'm also a longtime Buddhist practitioner Mm -hmm. of 30 years. And we understand this as us being here temporarily on this planet in, in human bodies, mm -hmm. uh, experiencing a dream. It's all going to go away. We're all going to die. We're all going to wake up at some point and the dream will be gone. And then we also have our private experiences of how we, we interpret that dream. And when I was walking in Berlin, I knew that I was having my own private experience of Berlin that was very different than anybody else's. So it was, I thought it was important to communicate that, that you, anyone who is looking at this book is looking at a private subjective experience of a place that might look totally different to anyone else. Wow, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that I asked that in a way that opened it and so you're talking about your Buddhist uh, uh, tenant of impermanence. And what I find fascinating, and here's where, I'll, where I will intersect my relationship with Berlin, which is why you tapped on it, because I have a historical one, which is actually quite painful and tied to my Jewish father-in-law. And the other, my... Uh, for lack of a better term, wonderful, riding my bike through Berlin with my family in 2015 with one of my dearest friends, which are another family that are German um, and aren't living in Berlin, but came and went through the city with us. So in a nutshell, uh, let me back it up to say that when I was traveling as a college student, I um, had the occasion to travel in between classes. And when I was uh, able, I was with a small group of, of my dear friends uh, and we went to Dachau. And I have literally said to every person I know how important that is and what an indelible mark it made on me um, and my group of friends. Uh, and we were of all different religious persuasions, including Jewish. Um, so I came into Berlin with the knowledge of my father-in-law, whose name was changed when he uh, became a young adult, um, but he was Benvenuto Levine when he lived in Berlin in the 1930s with intellectual parents who were actually working in the medical field, including psychoanalysis. His, his father, 
Ludwig Lewin uh, started a school that exists to this day. It's called the Lessinghol Schuler. And what happened was my father-in-law was an only child and was sent in a refugee program as a young boy on a ship to the United States, to the Midwest. He did not speak English. And it was a program to get kids out of Hitler, Berlin. He remembers Hitler camp. Um, his family went to other countries before this opportunity happened. His parents stayed in Berlin while he was here, trying to figure out life, language, etc. He'll he gave the story of what it was like, and he got up to watch the Statue of Liberty come into view when they were coming into New York. So he was then asked to change his name by his father because it was Jewish connotations, and they wanted to change that. So that's where my husband, Eric Luden's father, comes from. Uh, my children called him Opa, and he actually wrote to my kids a lot of this history because he wanted it to go on. So my husband had been back to Berlin with his dad. I wanted to as well, but he became ill and we were not able to go as a family. So my friends helped us go through because his father's artifacts are actually in a museum and the Lessinghol Schuler wanted to meet with us, but because we were there in August, it made it really difficult to do both. So I just wanna give that as my background. And then to say, as soon as you said you were doing this book on Berlin, I have this like, of just, I went once knowing immediately once was not enough. I was overwhelmed with the sense of history, like, like literally couldn't believe where I was standing and knowing how many layers of human history, suffering, et cetera, were happening. And I was having a fun, art-filled experience at the same time. I mean, it was riveting, everything about it. So that's why I come to your book with a whole host of things, including loving Mitta, loving the barn coffee, um, just walking Augustrasse till I literally had blisters and, and, and being able to go to camera work and see their beautiful Charlottenburg, beautiful gallery and go into the one in Mitta. Um, so anyway, you hit a lot of places for me. So thank you for letting me share that. But yes, I am having a subjective response before I even opened the book. So what a, what a cool layering. Um, thank you for, for sharing that story. And it just goes to show you that, you know, we have to remember Berlin is the center of Europe, right? Yeah. And it was the center of so much atrocity, but also so much creativity. Absolutely. So much creativity has come out of, of Berlin, of that city for so long. Mm -hmm. So um, bringing up the third writer, mm -hmm. so I felt like I needed another voice. And when yes. you're walking around Berlin, as you know, you have all of these feelings. Mm -hmm. And I needed someone to write about that from a Jewish perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I... I did some searching to find the right person. And I found a, uh, someone who's lived in Berlin all her life and was born in Tel Aviv. 
and has been a moderator for Jewish issues and a writer on Jewish issues in Berlin for many years. Her name is Shelley Kupferberg. And she wrote about how you can't help but walk the city feeling the ghosts of all the Jewish people who have been there. She writes, she writes about her own building that um, the deed to the building itself was given to a, a Christian woman who had lived in the building. And she felt so guilty afterwards that uh, before she died, she gave it to a Jewish organization. So she writes about that. She writes about being in flea markets and not knowing the history of where some of those objects came from. Maybe they were confiscated by the Nazis. We don't know. So she, she really created a wonderful essay. And that also brought some ghostly images into the edit as well. Images that I originally cut out, I brought back in to try to show visually what she was talking about in her essay. Yeah, it's so interesting because when I was there, the Stumbling Stone project had started. So I was, I was looking for it and obviously found it. But frankly, just walking anywhere in Berlin, you, you do feel that. You just feel um, the presence of history. You just can't yes. not. Um, yes. Let me ask you about another conceptual decision you made, and I love that you're helping us see how the book was a nimble process and that it had to be a responsive process that you allowed the work uh, of both your collaborators and your own imagery to have a conversation and to basically get filtered and get filtered and how that is necessary, but you made a decision, which I think is really interesting, um, to go west to east. And you mentioned that as um, a geographic layout of the book, it was also something metaphorically that you're walking towards the sun, uh, literally, and then also in the metaphoric sense, walking into your past. So when did that come to your awareness? So first of all, I always tell my students to consider themselves private investigators of their subject matter <laughs> and to photograph a lot, yeah, right, and to research a lot. And so I took a dose of my own medicine and did so much so that I photographed, I think, way too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I photographed hundreds of rolls of film over five years, and I came up with too much material. And by the time I was ready to edit, I had too much material. It was very difficult to sift through. And so it was a bit of an organic process working with the, the book designer, who is Matthew Papa, mm -hmm. and also the writers mm -hmm. to suss out what were the most important images, how to carry this narrative through, and what needs to be edited out, mm -hmm. even though I liked the imagery. Mm -hmm. So Matthew, I. I wanted to get, a, so talking about book production, my previous books were designed by the, the owners of the, public, of the publishing houses themselves. Yep. And I basically handed over stacks of prints and they would say, let's make a book. And they would lay it out in a way that was comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. I decided with this book, I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to open up the, the design to, 
to have some new considerations in there. And I found uh, through another photographer, Matthew, and Matthew came from Martha Stewart magazine, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting to have this idea of maybe some vibrancy instead of a kind of stoic standard approach that we usually experience with photography books. Let's liven it up a bit. Mm -hmm. And he came back with a really different kind of design, new typography, and uh, much more exciting and fast paced than I'm used to, mm -hmm. um, much more energetic. Mm -hmm. One of the, he was also very good with editing because he was not as familiar with the project as I, I was. Mm -hmm. And one day early on, he pointed to one picture and it was the photograph of me looking down at the road from the top of the, of the Sigasoyla, the victory column. Mm -hmm. And he said, you are looking east. And I said, well, this is interesting because we associate the west with the present and moving forward into the future. And we associate the east with going into the past as where we came from, right? And he said, well, why don't we organize this whole book geographically? I mm -hmm. thought, that's brilliant. And that is really going to help edit out a lot of the pieces. Yes. So it, and it was interesting because the way that it started, the far Western part of the city starts with the, uh, the, uh, the, the Bridge of Spies. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a great way to start this book because I am kind of a spy walking through the city, right? I am a foreigner walking through the city. And then the next part, of the of the book was oh I'm forgetting the the name of the uh, famous hang on I think I know where you're going yeah the the movie studio right mm -hmm. and I'm just spacing on the name of the movie studio now mm -hmm. and I thought how great it is to have uh, a photograph of me as a, uh, an image representing me as a foreigner, and then an image representing me as someone who is making up a story, who mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. who is um, creating a narrative and walking through this narrative. Okay. And then it walks into the center of the, of the, the city, and then eventually ends up at an open park, at Trep Tower Park, at the very end. And it just worked out beautifully. Mm -hmm. So um, it really helped edit the book that way. Wow. You, well, you're making me think of two things that just flashed in my head. One is one of my top 10 movies ever, Wings of Desire, in terms Absolutely. of like going to watch it again, <laughs> just because yes. of our conversation. And, and the other is so interesting. You reminded me. I was actually at a beer garden and I was meeting uh, a, a German friend and my husband was meeting us too. We all came from three different places on bike and we're sitting at the beer garden and it dawned on Eric and I, we were by a place where his father learned to swim and swimming was a lifelong passion of his. And, and it was one of those where we're literally having uh, you know, present day conversation. And I don't know who thought of it first, but it was actually sparked by a photograph. And, and my father-in-law had very few artifacts of his former life, including photographs. We have a very riveting one 
I still can't believe we have this snapshot. It is he and his mother on a train bench and his father is photographing them and there's a small suitcase and it is the day he's leaving. And his father's shadow is what's in the photograph, riveting. So sorry, I digress, but you made, me think, you made me think of both of those things. Um, I'm going to ask, because I, I, I just remembered, I just remembered the names. So it's oh. Gleinecker Brook, that yep. is the Bridge of Spies, and Babelsberg Studio, which is the oldest film studio in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, great. those were the two first markers in the book. That's great. I wanted to do two things in, in, in our time. I feel like I could, um, <laughs> I, I know that you made in the book uh, a reference, or at least I came away from this idea of um, a looking glass analogy. And that makes me think of my last artist talk, which was also Alice in Wonderland uh, inspired and this whole idea of a Jungian frame. And so we have a lot of other ways we could go into to talking, but I wanted to bring it to a few uh, specifics. So go back and let me know about the David Bowie station to station connection. Oh, that's, that's something that Bill put in and and I thought it was exactly right because it talks about the, the um, yearning, the mm -hmm. yearning that is associated with Berlin. And that was exactly my, my experience of it. Mm. You know, one of the things, so going back to the, the Martin Buber quote. Yes, the, the original. Mm -hmm. You know, the original mm -hmm. quote says, uh, uh, the world is not comprehensible, but it is embraceable through the embracing of one of its beings. And there is this feeling of yearning of mm -hmm. the people who, was, who were once there mm -hmm. and the people who are there now mm -hmm. among these places that so much destruction has happened. Mm -hmm. And so the, the David Bowie quote also has to do with that yearning and, and reaching into the sky. Wow. So, yeah. You know what's really interesting um, is that I know you dedicated the book to your mom, uh, who is who instigated your move to Israel, and thinking how that also reverberates in her yearning, right? And yes. you could say reaching for the sky. Yeah. So um, she, she wanted to get back to her Jewish roots after my parents divorced. And that's why she took my two brothers and I. Mm -hmm. to live in Israel and, and find her Jewish roots, become Jewish again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I wanted to do, because the artist talks, I'm really trying to give as much uh, resources for other people to understand their work through the experience of people who have done things like you have, which is have more than one book. Um, and you also have representation in three different places, uh, two different countries. And um, you also have had your work acquired at different museums. So if we could spend a little time with that aspect of your creative practice and how you uh, initiated or developed those relationships and anything you want to impart to people, a kind of what I wish I knew then that I know now, or uh, just an educational component on those two other aspects of what you've achieved. 
Well, we almost have to talk about that in terms of the old world and the new world, <laughs> right? I mean, there was a time when photography was extremely special. It was magical. There mm -hmm. were very few people practicing it. Mm -hmm. And the only ways that photographs existed was because we took the risk and put film in our camera and didn't know what we were going to get and just explored and explored and explored mm -hmm. from our own perspectives. And the only ways that pictures existed was when we went into the darkroom and printed them. So there were very few, relatively, and they were very rare. Mm -hmm. Our edition numbers for prints, for collecting prints, were much higher than they are now. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I produced most of my early work from 2006 uh, uh, in editions of 25 prints in three different sizes. That's 75 prints. Mm -hmm. I have several images, many of them, that are sold out in 75 prints, right? Mm -hmm. But now that everybody is a photographer, and now that everybody can create archival, archivally processed prints from their own printer at home, mm -hmm. now editions are in editions of three. Mm -hmm. It's all artificial, mm -hmm. right? Because photography, ironically, you know, can be reproduced indefinitely right mm -hmm. so we produced this this artificial edition number on it mm -hmm. uh, so back in the day it was easy to be acquired uh, by museums and private collections and shown because there were relatively few of us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now it's a totally different scene because uh, you know we're, we're experiencing a barrage of images on screen uh, you know many times over the history of photography completely every day, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that changes things. Um, I still think it comes down to, do you have something to say when you're photographing? Do mm -hmm. you have a unique point of view? Mm -hmm. What is your take on being alive? What is important to you? What are the values that you hold? So that has always been the case. And that is the case now. The part of the issue is there are fewer venues to show photography. There are fewer collectors. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of collectors who are dying, right? They're of the old world. They're not collecting anymore. Mm -hmm. And I talk to some curators and gallerists who say that their children are bringing the prints back to the galleries and saying, we don't want these anymore. Mm -hmm. So the question is, if you're a photographer and you're able to make prints very, very easily, where are those prints going to go? Who is going to be attracted to them? Who is your audience? Are they collectible? Right? And that becomes a deeper search than it used to be. So does that answer your question? I know it's a little bit on the side. My advice in how to, how to be acquired and to show is to be really good at what you do and have a very unique perspective. The problem now, of course, is that there's a lot of good work out there. There's a lot of good unique perspectives, mm -hmm. right? There, there's such a, an imbalance of supply and demand mm -hmm. that you are competing with other people who are also very good. Mm -hmm. And the market is geared more towards younger voices who are the new voices now, right? Mm -hmm. And so, even if you find um, you know, an audience for your work, you have to stay on your toes and be, I think, closer towards expressing what is happening in the world now. 
because social media changed all that. Mm -hmm. Social media allows us to photograph and, and distribute immediately, mm -hmm. which gives the um, emphasis towards what is happening at this moment, right? And that's what curators are looking for in many ways. So I hear curators talking about how I'm going to give a show to someone who is talking about what is happening in this moment in their own personal way. And if we acquire pieces and have shows, we want to be able to look at that work five or 10 years from now and find it a bit of a time capsule of this is what this time was like. This is what was important and valued by this photographer and culture in general. I don't remember that being so much the case before photography became democratized. I felt like there was very much an emphasis towards universality and things that do not change an expression of the human experience that doesn't change, that it was almost like um, an, a kind of spiritualism about the depth of, of the visual image itself and what it can say about the human experience. Well, I, see, I see more of that now in terms of how are people experiencing humanity right now? Well, it's interesting, and I'm sorry that we won't have a whole other hour to unpack that, but here's the thing. Um, I really love what you were describing and following your train of thought and this idea of that, uh, how I always put it in this perspective that we're all on a changing landscape. I mean, the last 20 years have been just mind boggling at the rate at which so many things have changed within the field of photography and then distribution, representation, our visual culture, sophistication, the fact that it is a universal language and our globalization means we're talking in imagery at a rate we have never ever done before. And what's really interesting is you could unpack it for how um, uh, untrustworthy a communicator uh, imagery is because of our own particular lenses. But what's interesting is you're also speaking to, and this is what we do not have time to unpack, but is super interesting, is this idea of right now looking, as you said, uh, what, what, what people are looking for is what can we say about our human experience right now? And I think one of the interesting confluences is that the, the democratization of photography has brought in so many more voices and we have so much catching up to do that there is a predominance of getting lesser amplified voices to move through the space that was held predominantly by frankly, white, wealthy men. So we've got so many layers to, um, to, to sift through here. So interestingly enough, um, I'm excited about trying to understand these changes because they're happening right under our feet and they are seismic. Um, just layer on our last three years of existence globally um, and we'll be unpacking that for <laughs> at least three generations. Um, so, so I love that you answered that with your perspective because that's really important and that it, there isn't uh, an easy answer. Um, and one note, because I'm, I'm going to have to wrap our time together, but 
uh, last question or last uh, idea. And I think we've opened up a lot of things that could be expounded upon, but um, is the photo book the future? A, because it travels, it's somewhat more democratic. I mean, the prices vary, but what do you think about the trajectory of the photo book? I think it's probably very good and I encourage it to be so. Um, I can tell you that when I pass away, my kids are not gonna wanna have anything to do with my hard drives. <laughs> you know, I can tell you that. But That's if right. I have printed a, a handful of books, with my photographs, my perspective on being alive and traveling through the world and the human experience, and especially if I've done some writing, that's gonna travel from generation to generation. You know, mm -hmm. this was my dad, this was what he was about. This was my grandfather's, this was my great grandfather. Mm -hmm. Those books are gonna stick around. Mm -hmm. Whatever we put on our hard drives, probably not. The, mm -hmm. you know, the exhibitions that we've had there are some pictures floating around and they are on our CVs, but also that experience is gonna be gone too. So one of the beautiful things about photo books is, is their longevity mm -hmm. and their ability to tell a narrative story mm -hmm. uh, in a compact place that is fixed, that mm -hmm. the, the, the artist has dictated the way that the experience is, is ideally supposed to happen and that unfolds in a certain way for every person that opens the book. Mm -hmm. I think that idea itself is gonna continue. If I were a filmmaker, I would feel the same way. I want my movie to be viewed a certain way, a certain beginning, middle and end. And the photo book does that as a film does. Well, I'm gonna leave us and I often do this where I like uh, more questions than answers yes. <laughs> necessarily, but my thought is uh, not, uh, one of the ways in which I think about this is as we arrive either at a book or film, we are different. So our lenses change with time and experience and accumulated memory. Um, so uh, yeah, it goes back to what you brought in about the mysticism uh, that underlines Judaism and, and all of our, our searchings, right? All of our yearnings. Um, if we're lucky, life is long and we yes. have a chance to explore a lot of different aspects of being alive and a lot of different aspects of ourselves and the world around us. Mm -hmm. And with photography, we have the opportunity to do that, uh, especially now. And I encourage people to see the world in a certain way and publish a book or have an exhibition, share it with people, and then look at yourself again and challenge yourself to see the world in a different kind of way, mm -hmm. right? And to see how deeply you can challenge yourself for experiencing the world. And there's a lot of opportunity and life is long if we're lucky. Well, you know, I love that. And I wanted to say, I believe we started our relationship online because you came to the photo book book group and you actually engaged in that and gave me reflection. And then I didn't meet you till April when I went to Portland for Photo Lucida. And I think um, you shared on the portfolio walk the last 
uh, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but your other project that you are simultaneously working on, or that, it's real, yeah, it's that's the samsara, the wheel of life and transcendence, which, which is, is my first we paper. Just, sorry, exactly. It's yeah. just what we're talking about, but that yeah, ooh, that book or that oh, I looked at your portfolio. What tell us about that, and that will be our last piece of info. Tell us what you'd like to about. So that project started because both my parents are gone. My father died in 2019, just before the the uh, pandemic happened, and I uh, the only camera that I had with me at the time was my camera phone, my mm -hmm. iPhone, and I photographed his body, and I just thought this is a part of life, and I've been practicing Buddhism for nearly 30 years. This is a valuable photograph. This is something that is worth showing. And I thought this is part of the life cycle itself. Mm -hmm. And how many other parts of the life cycle can be shown? And samsara, the wheel of life, is shown visually uh, by uh, uh, classical traditional paintings that hang in a lot of Tibetan Buddhist monasteries. And they show the six different realms of existence, the 12 different aggregates that come together to give us human consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, the most important, which is in the center, which is ignorance, attachment, and aversion chasing each other all the time, which makes us stay ignorant in this life, that we're not able to understand what life is truly about. And then we're we're, we die. And then if you believe in reincarnation, we're born again, and we keep doing it again and again and again. Samsara is called endless wandering. Mm -hmm. And it's how we're just going from thing to thing in this world and not waking up and not uh, finding out the true reason why we are here. And samsara and practicing it and understanding it um, using Buddhist practices tries to get us liberated, tries to get us out of this cycle. Mm -hmm. So I've been photographing many different aspects of human life itself and trying to create images of the six realms of existence and the 12 aggregates and all of that. It's just gonna take a long time. And I have this book coming out at the same time. So I'm very busy. Well, and it sounds like um, you'll be coming back because it yes. sounds like we have more to talk about. Yes. Um, well, I'm hoping that I'm wishing you well with the busy schedule. I'm wishing you well with the launch of Berlin. Um, I appreciate um, you spending the time now. And uh, maybe next time I'm in Portland, I will do a studio visit but it's been fun to at least um, cross our time zones and, and talk now. So thank you so, so much. I'm really excited we got to, to put this together. Thank you so much. It was super fun and an honor to be questioned by you. You're just a great, you're a great interviewer. I love your questions. They're very deep and they get at the heart of what photography is all about. Everybody should be very appreciative of, of the work that you do, Sibylla. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, it's a passion. It's an organic one. And I know I've said it before, but it's like my art is the creative practice. So it's my privilege 
to run alongside, as someone would say, I run shotgun, right, on your artistic practice and the, the conceptual development. So um, it's really fun and, and truly a privilege. So thank you. Thanks for that reflection. You're welcome. All right. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.